0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 this morning. There's a story told about a man named Joe who was miraculously converted at a Bowery mission. Prior to his conversion, uh, he had gained the reputation of being a dirty wino for which there was no hope, uh, only a miserable existence in the ghetto. But following his conversion to a new life in God, everything changed. Joe became the most caring person that anyone associated with the mission had ever known. Joe spent his days and nights hanging out at the mission doing whatever needed to be done. Uh, There was never anything that he was asked to do that was was considered beneath him. Whether it was cleaning up vomit left by some violently sick alcoholic or scrubbing toilets after careless men had left the bathroom filthy. Joe did what was asked with a smile on his face and a seeming gratitude for the chance to help. He could be counted on to feed feeble men who wandered off the street and into the mission and to undress and tuck into bed men who were too out of it to take care of themselves. One evening, when the director of the mission was delivering his evening evangelistic message to the usual crowd of sullen men with drooped heads, there was a one man who looked up. He came down the aisle to the altar. He knelt to pray, crying out for God to help him change. The repentant drunk kept shouting, Oh God, make me like Joe! Make me like Joe! Make me like Joe! Make me like Joe! The director of the mission leaned over and said to the man's son, I think it would be better if you prayed make me like Jesus. The man looked up at the director with a quizzical expression on his face and asked, Is he like Joe? (laughs) This is the kind of dramatic change that we see taking place in the life of Saul of Tarsus after he met Jesus face to face on the Damascus Road. In fact, Luke describes for us the profound effect that this event had on his life in Acts chapter 9. Beginning there in verse 20, Luke says this, immediately he preached to Christ in the synagogues that He is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not He who destroyed those who called on His name in Jerusalem? and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him to Tarsus. Immediately after Paul met with Ananias, he began to preach the gospel in the synagogues of Damascus. In fact, we a couple of weeks ago we looked at that event where Ananias came to Paul and he, because God had, had told Ananias to go, he went, even though he was concerned because Paul was a fierce man. And Ananias went there. Against his better judgment, but trusting in God and God's word, and he went and he prayed and he laid hands on Paul, and Paul's sight was restored, and he was baptized, and we're told that immediately he began to preach Christ. There was no delay. I don't know if you think about this, but you know, Paul didn't have some sort of a time where you know he had to straighten his life out or or. Uh, you know, maybe he had to learn uh, you know, the four spiritual laws or something else. You know, learn how to to share his faith. In fact, what we find here is that when Paul preached that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Jews in the in the synagogues were amazed and they were astounded by him and by his preaching. And I think it's interesting that that immediately when he began to preach, the people who heard him preach recognized that something had changed in him. Something very dramatic had changed. He was not the same man who they had known before. Who they had feared before. Paul began to preach. These men noticed that a shift had taken place. Something unprecedented. This man who had been a vicious opponent of Jesus' followers, had now become a preacher of the Gospel. They couldn't deny that there was a change in Paul. We've already noted that Paul's conversion to Christianity was profound proof of the power of the Gospel to change lives. In fact, a couple of weeks ago I said that, that. That really, there may be no greater evidence for the truth of the Gospel That Jesus Christ did truly die on a cross for our sins. That He was buried and that on the third day He rose again. There there may be no greater proof than the person of the Apostle Paul. This man who hated the Christians because he believed that they were in error. He believed that they were corrupting the truth. And he viciously opposed and attacked them. And his transformation to become a preacher of the Gospel... Not just one of those Christians, but one of the most outspoken, the most most bold preacher of the gospel. The missionary who took the gospel from Jerusalem and Judea and spread out from there into Asia, into Europe. The Apostle Paul's influence cannot be underestimated. But you know, I would actually say there's something maybe a little closer to home for us that is also proof of the Gospel. You see, I don't know about you, but I've never met the Apostle Paul. It's unlikely that I'm going to any time, at least in this life. The Apostle Paul, he lived and ministered almost 2,000 years ago this is a historical character. This is someone who we read about, but we've never met. And so we can read about his conversion. We can read about the change that took place, but this doesn't hit that close to home. But I think there's something else. In fact, I would say that the greatest confirmation of the Gospel today in this church is its power to change lives. The Gospel has the power to change your life and change my life. In fact, it has the power to change anyone who will hear it. Anyone who will receive it in faith. Anyone who will believe what the, what the Bible tells us. The Gospel can change you. It can dramatically, one, like, like the Apostle Paul, 180 degrees. If your math is a little bit rusty or geometry is a little rusty, that means going the exact opposite direction from where it was before. Your life can be completely turned around, completely changed by one thing, and one thing only, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is an example of that, but if you're a Christian this morning, you are an example of that. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've truly believed and trusted in Christ, then guess what? That life-changing power is in you. That means that your story, your personal experience, your, your personal testimony... Is, is very frankly maybe the most important, most powerful proof of the Gospel that exists today. Because if your life has been changed, then the Gospel is true. If you've heard the Gospel of Jesus Christ, believed it, and your life has been changed, that's proof. That's all the proof that you or anyone around you needs. The Gospel is, it's true. It's real. You see, there's a, there's a lot of gimmicky methods out there to share the gospel with others. In fact, there, there are some really valuable and effective tools and methods we can learn. In fact, um, what we've done both of the last two years in, in the, the first quarter of the year, January, February, and March, uh, I've done a study on Wednesday nights in sharing our faith, in, in developing tools and learning how to share the Gospel effectively with others. We just finished up a study two weeks ago uh, in, in in a book called Tactics that talked about how we share our faith and developing some of the skills to talk to people to be able to share the Gospel. And so there are some good things we can learn about how to share the Gospel. But I think Acts 9 shows us something. It shows us that your personal story of how Jesus Christ has changed your life is quite possibly the most powerful Gospel witness that you can share with another person. You see, if you have experienced the power of the Gospel in your life, that's all you need. That's all you need to be able to tell someone else about the change that's available. The fact that there is hope because you've experienced it and you can share your own story. Because we often have a list of excuses that we use to justify our unfaithfulness in this area. A lot of reasons why we can't share the Gospel with someone. We can't tell someone about Jesus Christ. We can't share with someone the truth. But our list of excuses is just that. A list of excuses. There's no legitimate reason that you and I cannot share Jesus Christ with those around us, if, of course, we know Him. Because the simplest, most direct, and maybe the most powerful thing we can do is simply say, this is what Jesus Christ has done in my life. And I, and I think, to be honest with you, I think that's what the Apostle Paul was doing here. What it, I mean, he didn't have a seminary training. Well, he didn't have you know, Bible college training or seminary training. Well, oh, he knew the scriptures. He was a Pharisee and he'd been taught the Old Testament scriptures. But as a Jew practicing Judaism, all of a sudden he becomes a convert to Christ. And what does he do? He goes around and starts telling people about Jesus Christ. He didn't say, Well, I got a lot to learn before I'm ready to do that. No. Well, I got a lot to figure up, boy. I got a lot of problems in my life. I've got to figure them out before I can really do that. No. Well, you know, I just got a lot going on. A bit the Apostle Paul immediately began to tell others about what he himself had just discovered that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We have no excuse. Paul tells us, though, or Luke tells us, rather, when Paul went into the synagogues. He began to preach the truth about Jesus Christ. And people were amazed. They couldn't believe the change that had taken place in his life. It was dramatic. It was astounding. But Paul learned something. Verse 22 tells us that Paul increased all the more in strength. And I don't think it's just referring here to physical strength, you know, he wasn't working out and getting toned. Nor was he recovering from some major illness or something like that. I think what Luke is telling us here is that as Paul practiced witnessing and telling people about Christ, he got better at it. He got stronger. He got more confident and more bold. He learned by practice. How many of you went to school when you were a kid? If you're still kids, you might go to school now. It's okay for you to, if you didn't go to school, that's okay too. I'm just asking. Um, I was a math teacher for eight years. So how, how does your math teacher teach you math? Anybody have to memorize like multiplication tables? Anybody? Most of you didn't. I don't know if the kids anymore do. But anyways, we did when I was, yeah, you had to memorize it. So what did you have to do? You had to repeat it over and over and over. We used to sit in class and we used to call them out to our teacher, right? One times one is one. One times two is two. One, yeah. The ones, that's the easy. I'm good at those. Um, but like, you know, we used to do this. We used to, we used to sit there in class and the teacher would tell us, okay, go through and, and and recite these multiplication tables. And we would do that. You remember doing that? Why? Because repetition. Practice. That That was how we got good at it. That's how we developed our skill at it. We had to practice it over and over and over again. <clears throat> we had to Develop a skill. Well, guess what? Sharing the gospel with other people is something that we learn best by doing and we refine by practice. We have to practice. That means the first time we do it, we're probably not going to be 100% comfortable with it. We're probably not going to really feel like we did a wonderful job and we were excellent and prepared. We're probably scared to death. But we do it. And each successive time we do, we can learn from those experiences. That's what happened with the Apostle Paul. He began to preach the gospel in the synagogues, going to where the Jews met, and talking to them, opening up the Old Testament scriptures, reading it and saying, listen, this is talking about Jesus Christ. A man who was crucified, who rose again, who I saw and met face to face. And let me tell you about him. And over time, Paul developed. In fact, the more that Paul's views were challenged, the better he got at defending them. You see, so many times we're worried that we're worried and we say, you know, I, I would go talk to my neighbor, or my friend, my coworker, or whatever. I would say something about Jesus, but what if they ask me a question that I don't know an answer to? What if they stump me? Good. I hope they do. I mean, to be honest, if, they, if, you, if you go to your neighbor this afternoon and say, no, I, I don't know what to say, but I'm going to say it anyways. I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ. And they ask you a question and you don't know the answer to Good. Good. Because if they ask you a question you don't know the answer to you know it's your only resort. The only thing you can go back to is pick up the Word of God and start looking and saying, God, help me find the answer. And that's good. Because this is where we need to be. You see, as we do that, we get better at it. Someone asks us a question. They challenge our views. We say, I don't like conflict. I I don't like having to have a disagreement with somebody. Listen, we have the truth of the Word of God on our side. Does that mean that we're perfect? No. Does that mean that we somehow should have big heads and we should tell everybody how wrong they are and how foolish they are? No. But we have the truth, so why are we afraid? Let's stick with the truth. And Paul did it. I think what we see here is that this early experience of Paul, as he began to share his faith, he went to the synagogues, he began to he began to, to debate, really. He began to get in and he got in arguments. People said they didn't agree with him, they began to challenge his views. And what did Paul have to do? Well, he developed skill. The more he was challenged, the more able he became in defending the truth. And like any other skill, the more that we use it, the better we get. Unfortunately, most of us have probably never shared Christ with anyone. Or or we haven't done it in so long, we don't even really know where to begin. But this passage gives us an indication of Paul's method of evangelism. And I think it's interesting in verse twenty-two there. It says that he confounded the Jews, proving that Jesus is the Christ. It says at the end of that verse that that word uh, "proving" there is interesting, because it means to, uh, to to lay together or to lay side by side, to bring together. I think what it's suggesting here is and and, and in. in the way that word is used, I think what it's telling us is that the Apostle Paul had a very simple method. He took the Word of God, the Old Testament Scriptures, and he laid it side by side with the person and work of Jesus Christ to prove that what the Old Testament had promised, Jesus had fulfilled. But what was Paul's resource? You know, Paul made arguments He confounded the Jews. That suggests that he actually used rational arguments. He tried to explain to them why it made sense to believe in Jesus Christ. And so he did do this. He did go through a rational, logical thought process. But he wasn't just using logical arguments. He used the Word of God. He used the Word of God to prove that Jesus was the Christ. He took the Old Testament... Took the works of Christ and laid them side by side to prove that Jesus did fulfill the Old Testament. He was the promised Messiah. We need to do that. This is, Paul gives us an example here to follow. His method was using the Word of God, it's our most powerful tool. Word of God. I remember when I was in high school, I was uh, working in a restaurant. As a short order cook, and and I closed the restaurant Monday and Tuesday nights, and you know, wasn't real busy Monday and Tuesday night usually, and so I'd have time uh, when I was kind of caught up on everything, just waiting for customers to come, and and would talk with some of the other employees, and, and I remember had had a chance to witness to a a, a, woman, a woman that I worked with, and I was trying to tell her about Christ, I was trying to tell her about the gospel, and I was trying to share the word of God with her, and she said, oh, I I'm she said, I'm an agnostic. I don't even, believe, I don't even know, believe that the Bible is really true. And I remember I went home and I said to my dad, I said, Dad, how, how do you witness to somebody who doesn't believe the Bible is true? What do you tell them? You know, you read John 3.16, and they say, well, I don't believe it's true. You know? And you read Romans 3.20, I don't believe that's true. And you read Romans 6.23, I don't believe that's true. And you go through the whole Romans I don't believe that's true. So I said, Dad, what do I do? There must be some other way, Right? And he said, no. You go back to the Word of God. You keep going back to the Word of God. I was probably 15 or 16. That, that lesson stuck with me because I became convinced, my dad helped me to see this in Scripture, Hebrews 4.12. The, the author of Hebrews tells us the Word of God is like a double-edged sword. It pierces the heart. It says it divides the soul and spirit. And it discerns the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You see, the Word of God is a powerful tool. And so someone says, well, I don't believe the Word of God. Well, okay, read it anyways. I'm not playing games here. Just read it. This isn't the trick. But the Word of God, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, it's an incredibly powerful thing to change lives, to change hearts, to change minds. It can convince people of things that you and I could never convince them of. And so someone says, well, I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. Well, okay, read it anyways. Because it's only through reading the Word of God. And the power of the Holy Spirit to take it to the heart, to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God changes us. It's the gospel. This was Paul's resource. He used the word of God. And so I think this is important for us to understand. Paul didn't have some gimmick that he used. He didn't even have gospel tracts to hand out. All he had was his own testimony, his own story of how Jesus Christ had met him. And he had the word of God. And that was enough. Because we're told that he confounded the Jews in Damascus. They had no answer for him. This man who was just days from being an unbeliever, right? I mean, he only been a Christian for, for a short period of time, and what does he do? He confounds the Jews who were studying in the synagogue together. Why? Because the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ is true and it has power. And we can use that power. We can take the Word of God and we can can share it with other people. We can explain to them what Christ has done for us. I believe this is what Paul was doing. I think this verse, verse 22, teaches us the first of three lessons this morning that we can learn about the nature of the Gospel. The Gospel is reasonable. I said that Paul was not making strictly logical arguments. He wasn't coming, you know. We don't get into them this morning, but you know, there's there's seven proofs for the existence of God, logical proofs for the existence of God. I don't know if you're familiar with them. There's all these different arguments you can use, and they have cool names like the teleological argument and the you know cosmological argument, and and things like that. They're really kind of neat, you know. You can Just fun because you can amaze your friends with all these cool words you know. Um, but that's not what Paul was doing. I mean, Paul wasn't just offering all logical arguments to believe in God. But he was using logic and reason. You see, this is important for us to understand. You don't have to set aside your mind to become a Christian. You don't have to stop thinking or, or somehow we don't have to, 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 to start you know, believing in myths and fairy tales to be Christian. Jesus said the most important commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. We are not to disengage our minds when we become Christians. And Paul didn't. He argued with these people. He proved to them that it made sense to believe that Jesus was the Christ. He proved it to them. He used rational, reasonable argument. This is important. You see, the Bible reveals truths to us. And we can deny them, but we can't live apart from them. The Bible tells us that man is a created being, specially made in the image of his Creator to be a rational, psychological, volitional, and spiritual being. Genesis tells us that the first created humans refused to obey God. They severed their intimate relationship with Him. And as a result, every human being has inherited a sin nature, being born relationally dead to God, and being inclined to selfishness and evil by our very nature. The result of a life lived in this state is death, followed by condemnation and eternal punishment. No measure of religiosity or reform can change the very fabric of our being which as we have inherited it stands opposed to God's authority and justly deserves His damnation. As I said a minute ago, we can deny these things are true, but we can't live apart from them. They are true. There are those today who would deny the fundamental nature of man being created in the image of God. But their denial doesn't fit with reality. We really are created in God's image. With an intellect. With emotion. With a will. And God's Word tells us this. You see this, when we read the Word of God, it actually corresponds to what is real. God's Word says we're created in His image. It says that that, that mankind was created to be an intimate fellowship with God, and yet we rebelled. And because we rebelled, our very nature became corrupt. And that this corrupt nature is passed on from father to son, mother to daughter, generation after generation, so that every person born on this earth is born with that inherited corruption. We call it that original sin nature. And if we live a life following our nature, we will one day stand in judgment condemned. These are undeniable truths. But you know the Bible also reveals to us other truths. It tells us that the same Creator who is thoroughly just. And because He is just, He must condemn those who refuse to obey His righteous standard. But this same Creator loves the creatures that He made. In fact, He loves them in spite of their rebellion against His love. And His love motivated Him to offer His own Son to pay the penalty for our disobedience so that He might be able to justify those who are thoroughly guilty without becoming guilty himself Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 3 have you ever wondered why God couldn't just wave his hand and say everything is forgiven I'm just going to absolve everyone I'm just going to forgive everyone you see there are many today who would suggest that if God is truly loving that's how he would be he would just wave his hand and say nope I am going to set all of the uh, prisoners free. I'm I'm going to absolve all of you of every wrongdoing you've ever done. But a truly loving God, who is also a just God, can't do that. Because for God to absolve all of us of our sin just waving his hand and declaring, you know what, I'm no longer going to hold you accountable, would be the greatest injustice that could ever be done. To allow guilty criminals who have violated the law to go free and not demanding anything in return would be a great injustice, wouldn't it? I mean, if you were attacked and robbed, and your attacker was captured by the police, brought to trial, and you were there in the courtroom, and you heard the judge look down at him and say, I know you're guilty, but I'm going to let you go free. Would that judge not be corrupt? Unjust? Wouldn't that be an even greater injustice than what had already been done to you? Yes. For God to declare us righteous would be unjust. And so loving God who would want to pardon us because he is just he cannot. And there would be a conflict between God's love and his justice if not for one thing and Paul explains that to us in Romans 3. Listen to what he says in Romans 3 and verse 23 he says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. No one has an excuse. No one's outside of this. But then he says this, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. The word propitiation means a satisfactory payment. God set forth Christ to be a satisfactory payment for our sin. And he says it here by his blood. And how do we receive that payment? By faith, through faith. To demonstrate God's righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that had been previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. You see, God could not be just if he pardoned us without demanding some payment. He couldn't be a just and righteous God if he did that. He would be a criminal himself. But God took His own Son and He set Him forth to be our payment by His blood. It's the only way. It's the only way that man who is corrupt and sinful can be given life Forgiveness. It's the only way it could be done. In fact, though there are some who claim that Christianity is irrational, that it's illogical, that somehow it doesn't make sense, what I would say is this, that in light of man's hopeless condition, if left to himself, a loving God could do no other than what the Bible says He did. You see, there is only one cure for the condition of eternal death that man finds himself in. One cure for eternal death, and that is eternal life. And eternal life only comes from one place, from Jesus Christ. Anything less would not overcome man's depravity. And anything else would be unreasonable. The only belief that is truly rational is belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the first lesson that we receive this morning about the Gospel is it's rational. It's reasonable. It makes sense for us to believe that Jesus Christ died for us because a loving God could do no less. He had to demand a payment. He is just. But His love compels Him to pay it for us Himself. Himself. satisfactory payment was made. And so there's no conflict between God's love and His justice. Both are met in Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, in Acts 9, maybe not surprising, Paul's preaching was not well received in Damascus. (laughs) Luke doesn't include a precise timeline here, but if we compare this with Paul's testimony in Galatians 1, sometime after his conversion here. He took a journey through Arabia, presumably preaching the gospel in countries, in, in, in the countries that are today, Syria, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. Then returning back to, to Damascus, that a time period of about three years uh, elapses here. Whether Paul was actually three years in Arabia traveling through the whole region, whether that took place in uh, Exactly how that took place with respect to his time in Damascus, we don't know. But a period of about three years elapses. Paul was in Damascus preaching, traveling in Arabia, and then he returns to Damascus. And when he returned to Damascus, possibly, in fact, the indication in Galatians 1 seems to suggest that Paul, the the people who had heard his preaching when he traveled in Arabia were not happy with him. And that followed him back to Damascus. And they riled up the the, 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 the mobs in Damascus, and they wanted to take his life. And so the Jews plotted to take his life. But Paul found out about it. We're told here in verse 23 and 24 and 25, Paul became aware of the plot. The disciples, the Christians there in Damascus, took Paul and they, they, they helped him escape. And so Paul escaped and he traveled south to Jerusalem. Galatians 1.18 tells us that Paul was only in Jerusalem for 15 days. But his experience there wasn't really that much different than Damascus. I look down at verses 28 and 29. It says here that he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. Not really much different than what he was doing in Damascus. But they attempted to kill him. Very similar response as well. Paul's consistency was important, though. You see, he continued to preach the Gospel, challenging his critics and speaking with boldness, even though the unbelievers in both Damascus and Jerusalem plotted to kill him. Luke says that Paul disputed with the Hellenists there in verse 29. It reminds me of Stephen. We read about Stephen earlier in the book of Acts, chapter 6 and 7. Stephen disputed with the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem. In fact, this may have been the same synagogue. You imagine the Apostle Paul who, when when he was there before, was consenting to Stephen's death. But then, now a, a few years later, he returns. Maybe standing in the exact same synagogue and he's now preaching the gospel. This is almost a mirror image, though, of Stephen's experience because Paul preaches the Gospel. We were told here that he disputed against the Hellenists and their reaction was to kill him, just like they killed Stephen. Paul's fellow believers there in Jerusalem, verse 30, also helped him to escape. They sent him back home to Tarsus where he would spend a period of time. Several years. There are two instances here right away in Paul's life was in danger because of the preaching of the gospel. And I think in these instances we can learn a second lesson about the gospel, and that is that the gospel is confrontational. The gospel forces those who hear it to make a choice to become a Christian or not. Each of us from the time we first heard the gospel must make a choice. We will either believe the word of God or we will trust the word of men. Oh, there's some, I suppose, well, I just not suppose, there are some who will claim that they are skeptical of all. But this is really just a clever fiction we like to tell ourselves. Because the skeptic can't question himself. Or if he does then he has no basis to be skeptical of others. The truth is, we only have two choices. We're going to believe something. We hear the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that He was buried and He rose again. We're confronted with a choice. Are we going to believe that? Are we going to stop trying to save ourselves? Are we going to trust and depend on the work of Jesus Christ alone for our salvation? Or are we going to obey the word of man and trust in the word of man and reject the truth of the gospel? That is the choice that we face. Even in this room, everyone here this morning is either trusting in the Creator's word or in the creatures. You've either put your trust in the finished work of Christ alone, or you're trusting in something that man has said will make you pleasing to God. Your church can't save you. Your parents can't save you. Your baptism can't save you. Communion can't save you. A prayer can't save you. Good works can't save you. The Apostle Peter said in Acts 4, It's by the name of Jesus Christ. And there is no salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is one way. Believing the truth of the gospel. And this morning, you're forced to make a choice. There is no neutral ground. You need to choose right now to stop trusting the word of man and start believing the word of God. Don't make the mistake that King Agrippa made. Many years after Paul's conversion, he told Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. The song Almost Persuaded is a very powerful song. The song uses these words. It says almost persuaded, almost but lost almost isn't good enough. You have a choice. You cannot remain neutral to the Gospel. You see, this morning, if you persist in unbelief, your heart will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why we would plead with you this morning. In the words of Scripture, in the book of Hebrews, it says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Paul told the the believers at Corinth, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You must choose this morning. Well, maybe you've already chosen. Maybe you've trusted Christ. Wonderful. But if not, then you've chosen to rebel. You've chosen to reject. You say, well, I haven't chosen. Yes, you have. Because a failure to repent and trust in the work of Christ is rejection, is rebellion against his word. You must choose. The gospel confronts us and forces us to choose. But there's a third truth about the gospel in this passage. The gospel is unifying. That is, it brings together a community of diverse people who have experienced the same life-transforming power. None of us can lay claim to being more worthy of salvation and forgiveness than any other. Look around. Look at the people who are sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you. You are no more worthy of salvation, no more worthy of God's forgiveness and His love than they are. None of us is. Although we often act as though we were more savable than our neighbor, the truth is that each one of us deserves God's righteous punishment for our sinful rebellion against Him. And it's only the grace of God through Jesus Christ that can, that, through which we can receive forgiveness and be declared righteous. It, Paul, in, in the book of 1 Timothy, would write this later on. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which were in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy. That in me, first, Christ Jesus might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in Him for everlasting life. Paul is a pattern for you this morning and for me. First of all, to understand that he called himself the chief of sinners. If you think that you're beyond hope, if you think that somehow you're too far gone, That God could not save you. You're wrong. He saved the Apostle Paul. He can and will save you. If you'll trust Him by faith. But the second way that this is an example to us, for those of us who are already believers, is that we ought not look down on someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ and assume that they're too far gone. That there's no way that God can forgive them. Nothing that we could do that would ever reach them. That it's a lost cause. Or somehow they're not worth our time. Because we forget sometimes ourselves. Where we came from. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. (laughs) Wait a second. (laughs) I wasn't that bad. I mean, really. Paul, I think you're wrong. I was really, really a good guy. I mean, you know... Helping old ladies across the street, uh, you know, helping kitties out of the, getting kitties out of trees. I mean, I'm a good guy. I wasn't like that. Paul says, no, don't even start. Such were some of you, he says. But you were washed. This is the good part. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The capstone of Paul's argument in Romans 1 through 3 is a simple phrase there is none righteous, no, not one. You see, in Christ, each of us stands as an equal recipient of his grace. And I say that as your pastor, but I say that as a sinner who's been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. No better than any of you. No more deserving than anyone else. Simply blessed because God in His mercy didn't destroy me like He should have. But he gave me His grace. Paul, again, he, he, his words later on that reflect back on what happened in his life are so powerful. He said to the young Pastor Titus, in Titus 3.5, "...not by works of righteousness which I have done, but according to His mercy He saved us." They told the church in Rome, "...I say to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think." You see, we come together this morning and none of us are better. None of us are more deserving. None of us are more righteous. Each of us stands before God with nothing in our account, nothing we can offer to Him except for a bunch of debts that we can't pay. And His grace overcomes that. We're all on equal footing. And if we're all on equal footing with respect to the Gospel, then pride is excluded. I read this week in Psalm 115, The opening verse, it says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to Your name give glory. You see, I don't deserve any of the credit for my life. I don't deserve any of the credit for what God has done. He deserves the credit. 1 Corinthians 15. Or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 10. Paul says, But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Understand this morning, you can look out across this congregation, look at each other and say, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. At least I'm better than... And Paul says, that is the most foolish thing you can do. He says it's not the one who commends himself that God is impressed with. God's not pleased with us when we tell him how great we are. God is the one who judges. He's the one who commends. There's no pride if we understand that the Gospel brings unity. Why? Because the Gospel puts us all on equal footing. We're all sinners. We're all lost. All in need of His grace. This morning as we consider the dramatic change that had taken place in the life of Saul of Tarsus, let's take a moment to consider what change the Gospel has made in our own life. If you've heard the Gospel, and you have this morning, then you know it is not some fairy tale made up for weak-minded persons or for children. The gospel of Jesus Christ is firmly rooted in the truths of Scripture. Paul declares it to be so in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received: that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter. Then by the twelve... After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. And that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. The Gospel is powerful enough to overcome what separates you from God. It's the only answer to the problem of your sinful nature. You're forced to choose. Will you believe what God's word teaches? That Christ Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again the third day to offer you the gift of eternal life, if you will repent and trust him by faith. Or will you continue to live in rebellion against him, risking the distinct possibility that you may never open your eyes to another sunrise? and that you may pass from this life into eternity under the direct condemnation of a righteous God. The choice is yours, but you can't choose to be neutral toward Him. Finally, are, are those of you who are believers this morning willing to share the glorious message of the Gospel with even the most unlikely of candidates, knowing that you are without hope and undeserving of God's grace when He saved you? Are you willing to obey God's Word That you embrace without prejudice those who testify to faith in Jesus Christ. If the gospel truly has transformed us, then let's labor to see that transforming power at work in the lives of others. Let's pray.